This is Fish's Call Sheet. This is a show designed for me to celebrate all of the wonderful people who make production possible. And today is special for me because I have someone that I have admired literally my whole life, who sat on the stairs with me and cued me, who made me come in the back door on time, who made sure that when I was laughing and joking and playing, she kept me a kid, but at the same time gave me the freedom and responsibility to make sure I was doing my job as a professional. And now it is my unique pleasure to get to work with her every day on the Connors. And she really leads our set. She is our first AD, Amy Brown. Welcome. Thank you. And you're still my little kid. I love it. I remember all those days sitting up on the stairs, desperately trying to listen in for the cue line or for the moment. I had a short attention span, should we say. And so, you know, I'd be playing and joking and laughing and you're like, go, go, go. <laughs> oh my God, I have so many memories of all those years I see either on the stairs or in that hallway that led to John and Roseanne's bedroom. Yeah. What is your official title? First assistant director. First assistant director. What do people think you do not knowing? It's so interesting. I think most people have no clue. The funniest thing is actually was from a, a PA on a set years ago. It was a Jewish holiday coming up. It was Yom Kippur. And I was raised where my parents never worked on Yom Kippur. So I was wondering if I should take off. I was young. He said, I don't understand why you can't take off. All you do is yell out C letters. And I've never forgotten that. It makes me laugh so hard. And and Joe, who has been my second for 20 years now, we always laugh about, well, that's all we do, right? We yell out scene letters. I remember once many years ago on Roseanne asking for a raise and our producer saying to me, I don't even know what you do when I was the second. Second, you do all the paperwork and you stage all the background. That's your creative input. As a first, I like to say that I am the liaison between the stage and production. The producer, the exec producers rely on me for information about what's going on, who's happy, who's not, so they can address it. Biggest part of my job, a lot of producers who kind of understand would say that I do all the scheduling, wardrobe fittings, when is school, especially when you're working in children's television, what shoots when, what rehearses when, what's blocking, what, are, what needs to be pre-shot. I have found in the last at least 10 years, either I've been very fortunate to work with people who get it. In the last 10 years, I basically have gotten to set the schedule. It's a little different on the Connors. It's a totally grown-up show with some strong opinions, but they listen, they hear my arguments, and most of the time they understand I'm doing what's best for the show and the actors involved. Yeah, I always would describe an AD as a cross between uh, an air traffic controller, a psychologist, and the conductor who has to make sure this train runs on time. And yes. then if you do all of that well, somehow we add in the interpersonal portion of fundamentally getting 100 to 200 to sometimes 300 people all going in the same direction at the same time. It's, it's really interesting. It was very intimidating when I started. When I first started in New York on soap operas and we were stage managers, I was trained by an older woman who resented that she had to train me. I was the backup. I was the, the uh, script supervisor at the time, but I was learning how to be a stage manager and she didn't want to train me. And she told me I would never be successful because my pitch was too high and my volume was too low and I would never be able to command a stage. And it wasn't until 30 years, some 30 something years later that I was on a show with a producer who I had worked with 20 years prior, but she hadn't been the producer. And, and we reconnected on a kid show. And when we got to a part of our second or third season where we were shooting a movie version on the back lot at Paramount, and I was having a tough time. And one of the nicest things she ever said to me was when I first came on this show, I was used to only ADs who scream and yell. And there are a lot of them. That is a certain style. And that's never been my style. And for 25 years, I've told producers, if that's your style, then replace me because that's not who I am. I, I'm more like the mom. Mm -hmm. And I believe that you get more with kindness and understanding than screaming. And she said to me, you taught me in your quietness 
that you actually get more done than all the ADs I've worked with who yell. And I never thought that was possible. When I came on and I first heard how quiet you were, I thought, oh God, how, how does this get done? But it does. And everybody has to find what works for them. And I know there's still a lot of screamers out there, but I've always felt very maternal towards my cast. I just, you know, like you, I try to come from a place of kindness. Mm-hmm. I've always been struck by how much you lead with a quiet confidence. You can be loud when you need to, and that's the gift. And I also find that you do this really brilliant thing is every once in a while, you're a little quieter and people lean in because once you've shown them you can lead and once you've earned their respect and you do that so quickly on a set, because I've watched you through lots of projects, it almost works the other way. And I think it's more powerful because you get people engaged and they say, oh, she, she means something here. What should I be listening to? And I find that to be incredibly powerful. And it, I think it opens up the set because you don't have people being in fear. You have people feeling engaged and supported and committed. I coached for years and years as a high school coach. It's easy to intimidate people if you have a little bit of authority and pound on people, but you can only scare them so far. Right. If you motivate them, if you make them believe, if you inspire them, they'll go so much further and they'll go further than they thought they could. And on rough days, you pull together. And, Absolutely. And that's one thing I learned from you. Thank you. Know, you. Growing up a bunch around a bunch of really strong women, you were kind of that feminist ideal to me. You were strong and bold and would speak up when you felt like it was necessary. But at the same time, you knew how to be kind and gentle and maintain this kindness and personality. And you had kids of your own and we worked together while you were pregnant. Both times. No part of your life from my perspective as someone very close to you for 30 plus years, no side ever was cheated. You were always fully committed on all ends. And I I find that so admirable. And I always saw that as an astonishingly beautiful thing that doesn't get acknowledged enough. Thank you. You're a hero for me in so many ways. And on our show, you interface not just with producers and production and crew, but you're that direct line with our director. And I don't think people really understand that link. Um, You're hand in hand, making a schedule, planning how to do it. And on the Connors, for example, we have a lot of moving schedules because we have people who work on other projects and we all have other things going on. So trying to navigate that time minefield. Yeah, it's funny. Coming back because Roseanne was so not that 30 years ago, it was so simple. And coming back, it was like, Oh, back to like the simplest time in my life of scheduling. And then it's Emma Kenny has two shows and John Goodman has two shows and Jay Ferguson has two shows and Sarah has a talk show. (laughs) I know it became a huge juggling act. And sometimes I have worked with producers who don't want to share information and that's really a struggle. Uh, And I, I did run into that one season on the Connors trying to work and, you know, you just, you always have to be flexible as an AD and you, you come across every type of personality and you find a way to work with them or around them. Mm-hmm. That's what you have to do as an AD. You're always, you're the problem solver or part of the solving of the problems. It's so funny. You're the gear that makes all the other ones connect so often. Okay. You, you, you make everything run because you have to coordinate all of them and know when to throw a piece in or know when, okay, this person has to be someplace else. So now I have to move to say scene J, then we'll come back to A, then we'll go, you know, P, then we're going to come back. Right. Like, and then, and then we have to have everybody together and we got to figure out what time the run through is so that the writers or the network and everyone can come together and see A through P all in order and let's do it quick and make sure everybody's time is valued and managed. And then what time's tomorrow? And let's start tomorrow's call sheet. <laughs> and some directors, you know, they come in and they, it's their stage. I feel like when there's multiple directors, it's more of the AD and, and the producer stage. In the past, when you had one director that did the whole season, which is kind of rare now, They set the tone, but even then, like when I worked with one of our old directors, Andrew Wayman, he would always say, Amy, just tell me where to go and what to do. And there was that trust, even though he did all the episodes. And once you get a rhythm with a director and you know what they like and 
you can figure that out. It's more difficult when you have 10 different directors coming in, you don't know their pace, their speed, how they like to work. And it's funny because yes, I have to have, I have to keep things on time and I have to get to a certain point. You want that input. You want to be a teammate with the director. And sometimes they're like, I just want to rehearse and stop bothering me with your questions, but they don't like the answers. They don't like, well, can you get there by one o'clock? Can you right. show the producers by two? I mean, or you have a whole group of network executives who are going to show up at two thirty today. And some directors, everybody's different, right? If you come from a really fast TV background, then a lot of times you like to work fast. If you come from a single camera, you might like to do sections. If you come from a theater background, you might like to rehearse a ton, but that's all time. And then some people- some directors only like to go in order. Yep, and some people only like to go once or twice. In kids' television, we're scheduling the schooling, especially when you have a cast of four or five minors and you're juggling all of them and they're in some scenes together and some not, and you come up with this great schedule where they could all get their school. And I had a few directors, some of whom I really adored, but they were like, nope, first day you must let me go in order. Joe Stafford, who's great helping with scheduling and schooling, we always would put our heads together and think, that's really our job. Let's find a way to make the director happy and get it done. And most times we can, but a lot of times you just have to compromise. An AD finds a way, a good one, finds a way to make all of the multitude of voices get together almost in a choir and, and sing in the same direction. And if somebody wants to stand out and do their solo, you know when to let them and when not to. And you know, I think part of why I love my job so much is I've been doing this 37 years. I think part of what my love of my job continue after this long is that every show is different. Every group of people is different. So it's not like I've done the same thing for 37 years and, oh, aren't you bored? No, because every group of personalities is a whole new thing. And even every week when we have a different guest director, it's so different. Each person and, and egos and all of that that come into play each week, every, every week is different. It's one of the things I love about what we get to do. I love that every day is different. Yeah, it's a Monday and we're supposed to do a table read and maybe start to do a little bit of blocking, but we also have a photo shoot and somebody has an interview and hey, a producer or a network wants to come down. So it's not a regular Monday. And tomorrow, by the way, we have an additional interview and people are stopping by and there's a charity thing that's going to come through. And then on Thursday, when the camera comes, we're going to sneak in an EPK and a promo that's going to play yes. during the NFL draft, right? Get everybody in hair and makeup when no one was supposed to be in makeup and hair. Right. You know, I joke on this because I've been trying to explain to people what a call sheet is. That's where your whole call sheet changes. You know, I keep saying oh this. My that God, it, yes. it, it all goes from, I love on a call sheet when it looks good, but the reality is it's never as easy as the call sheet because the call sheet changes. Do you remember back on the original, a call sheet was like nothing. It was nothing. The ADs, we were still stage managers and didn't even do them. The office generated a call sheet. It was like this general, like, Here's who's coming in and here's when they're all coming. And now it's like this document. I swear when Joe's there or when Skylar uh, takes over for him, it's like an all day work in progress. It's not till the very end of the day when you could really look at it and say, is it good to send out? And then sometimes you send it out and an actor calls or a producer or something changes and you start all over and you can send out the revised call sheet. And you have to look at all of them because everybody loves to find the one thing that's not right on the call sheet. I know. That one typo. And you're like, or heaven forbid, you should misspell somebody's name. Oh, yes. Because people take, the, for me, I always laugh because I'm like, I couldn't care less. As long as we know what's going on and we're all on the same page, it's not a big deal. But you, I mean, that I try to be easy. But I laugh because there's people who it's like they look at it and they study it and go, I think that font's wrong. Yes, there was a mistake. Sorry. And we're human. And we're Move human. <laughs> Can I ask you about, I know being a kid on a show, but you, you touched on it. Maybe we should explain for people who don't know the complexity of having kids in your cast, particularly when you do a kid's show. Well, depending on age, infants are like 
you have a minuscule amount of time. We just went through this on the Connors. Babies up to six months can be on a set for two hours, but can only be under the lights for a total, which means you can only roll on anything they're in for a total of 20 minutes. Right, and there has to be, they can't be a consistent straight 20 minutes. A baby nurse to make sure you're, you're handling everything correctly. It depends on how hot the lights are. And we were very fortunate on the Connors this last two seasons. The lighting has changed over the years and they're not as hot. I think sometimes some nurses will let you only roll in, especially when the lights were hotter, like 30 seconds at a time, a minute. Then you get to, you know, as the kids age, there's just age groups up until six and then up until like nine and then 14 and all different. The and number every, every year I used to get an extra half an hour because I used to celebrate every year. That was one of the things about my birthday that I loved because for me, loving what I do and loving being on set, every year that was an extra half an hour I got to spend with you guys. So I was literally counting down. That was as good as my birthday. That was as good a present as I got was I got 30 more minutes with the people I love. Yeah, there's some age groups that are like six and a half hours total. That includes schooling, hair, makeup, wardrobe, anything else that has to happen. And then all of your rehearsal. And if you're shooting that day, some kids I did is with kids. They played quadruplets. You came to visit. They started at nine. And I think at nine, they were already eight and a half hours, eight and a half hours. When you put in three hours of school a day and, you know, 30 minutes to an hour of a wardrobe fitting that they might need. And a lot, a lot of scenes, they're all in together. And it was interesting as I did the pilot of that show as well. And I said to the network executive at the time, the only way this is going to work if it goes to series is if you split up some of these stories. Because if all four and everything, there's nowhere to go. And she said, all right, I'll talk to the network. And then the show got picked up. And then we started getting scripts. And none of the stories were split. They were all four and everything. And I went to her and she's like, yeah, the network said, no, they picked up a show about quadruplets. They want them all and everything. And it was a real struggle. They had to give us an extra shooting day. So we did three block and shoot days, no audience for four seasons, always up against the clock. We would shoot some scenes that were just like the parents. And when, if we were long, they always got cut. Say, yeah, the audience wants to see the kids. There's not enough hours in the day. And then I did another pilot. And it was not only four kids. One of them was little. She was like seven. So she had less hours. But they were half monsters. And we were dealing with some special effects makeup. It came from feature. And I'm like, can you give me an estimate for makeup? Because normally a kid's makeup and hair is like a half an hour. How much makeup does a little kid need? Right. And she's like, I don't know, as long as it takes. And I'm like, well, you did makeup tests. Well, yeah, but that was just playing around. So we did a test and she took four hours to do this one girl's makeup. And she had nine and a half hours. I said, I can't give you four hours a day out of my nine and a half. And she had elaborate wardrobes. And every time you had to change her, if you had to change the looks within your shoot day, that was an hour to turn her around. And people don't realize, add in three hours of school, add in, you must have an, uh, a lunch break, add in, you're yeah. limited, and there's no going over. So there's no oh. grace period of like, okay, we're here and we just need five more minutes. It's when the time's up, the time's up, and they're done. And then they have to have a turnaround, right? You have to have enough hours before they can start the next day. Yes, and it's funny because when I did that, that show for four seasons, my executive producer, who became a really dear friend of mine and still is, it was three block and shoot days and he was next to me for like, you know, 10, 11 hours a day. You have an hour left on the kids and we have like three hours of work. And we always made the week, not always the day, but always the week, which is the goal. He would always start with, well, there's nothing else I can cut. There's nothing I can rewrite. And then it would get rewritten and cut because there was no way around it. And he actually created the the half monster kids and the producer on that pilot kept saying to me and the director the entire time you're not getting a, a fourth shoot day so don't ask for it and the director and I were like we don't want a fourth shoot day believe me and the director kept saying I'll go fast I'll go fast and he is fast and then we get to the shoot days there's not enough time in the days trust me well there's nothing we can change there's nothing we can simplify and the director's going to go faster we get to the third shoot day and we're two hours behind. And the director very calmly said to me, so what happens when I don't finish? And I said, what do you, nothing. We've been told for like weeks now, there's no added day, so nothing. He goes, well, I'm not gonna finish. I said, 
I know, I've been saying that for a month. And the writers had said that they couldn't simplify anything. Well, when we had an hour left on the clock, believe me, they simplified everything and we got it all done. But that day was insane. There's something for kids you can do, which we've never ever had to do on Roseanne or the Connors, which is called a split call. And what you can do is you can call in a minor and when you're in trouble like that and you're hours behind, you can send that kid away for a minimum of three hours. And then you can call them back and use the remaining time. And I had to do that on that pilot. And I had to do it on that, that quadruplet series a few times. I never had even heard of it before that because I'd been able to juggle. For people who don't know, all of these things are so regulated and the rules change all the time. So every year you have to kind of find what is the new rule or what small adjustments are made and what what the union agreement is and then you watch different people come in and how you play with that game of trying to be the general and direct the troops but at the same time guide people through being realistic and when we were dealing with babies these last two seasons sometimes the baby's supposed to be like you know staring adoringly at the and the baby's screaming the entire time and you always try to have a hire twins, find twins. So we always had a backup baby, but they didn't really look the same like, and that's a problem. But you try switching out babies, and we went through when they were um, teething, mm -hmm. and both were screaming through an entire episode. Kind of have to go slow and make it work. Yeah, you can't, you can't t tell a baby to change their behavior. <laughs> so. No, you can't tell a, a, a seven-year-old not to have a meltdown, or an eight-year-old not to have a meltdown. All of these things come into play, or even adults, you know, people going through life things. We've had um, people going through divorces. We've had people who have lost loved ones. We have had situations where people were ill. We've had situations where people had emergencies. We've had people have kind of like diabetic issues or medical issues that were underlying that they have been healthy, but all of a sudden they flare up in the middle of the day. And now how do you, one, take care of that person first? but then managed to rework this very complex thing that was all built on the idea of a schedule that had no extra time in it. It's challenging, but that's what makes it fun for me. For me, I always feel like the way I can best describe my job is that I'm putting together pieces of a puzzle. And for many years in, during my career, I felt like when each episode for a Thursday, Friday shoot, every Friday night, I would feel like, whoa, got it all done. Like it's this feeling of you never quite know until you get there. But when we get to our live audience show, that for me is when I've done all the hard work and I can have just fun. You know, and enjoy people, the audience and the, and the moment and the play. And yeah. Except with certain directors who don't want you to have fun, but that's another story. That's a hard one too. Cause that's one of those things too, is sometimes people come in and they want it to be work or they think that if people are happy, that happy people don't work well because that wasn't their experience or how they grew up in their career. Exactly. And exactly. for us, and we try to have fun. We, we yes. look for the fun. We'll make the fun. Absolutely. And I had, I was going from one show to another and the show that I was on, I, I would make myself the center of being laughed at, laughed with. I would always have the sound guy when the crew was setting up on our three block and shoot days on Nicky Ricky, play music that I loved. And I would always grab random crew members while everyone was setting up and make them dance with me. And they'd be like, no, no, I don't want to dance. I'm like, we all look stupid. Let's just do it. That's why it's fun. And I'll never forget. I was working with two crew members who knew a director that I was going to be working with on my next project and kept saying, you can't, you can't do that where you're going. You're not allowed to have fun. And I'm like, but I can only be me. So I, I ended up having to kind of, not be me. And it was hard. Mm -hmm. And I decided I won't ever do at this stage in my career. Well, I think you've earned that right. Thank you. Thank okay. You. I have a question that I don't know the answer to. So I'm very curious to know what was the moment that you knew you wanted to work in the entertainment industry? What brought you into this? Uh, I don't know if you know the answer. I, my brother was a photographer. I wanted to be a photographer at first. And my brother set me up with a dark room in my parents' house and gave me a, one of his old Nikons and a whole developing station. And that was my first dream. And then somewhere along the line, I, along the way, I decided that I think I wanted to be an actor. And I dropped out of college after one year 
and my parents were devastated. My parents didn't get to go to college. Their kids were the first, you know, to go. And my brother had gone and my sister had gone and I was the baby of the family and I dropped out to go to acting school in Manhattan. And they were like, please just go back to college. No. And so I started doing background work on all the soap operas in New York. I did a play and I did some auditions and it was really interesting. It was the 80s. You can't say the things that were said to me now without getting like sued for sexual harassment or whatever, but you know, oh, you're too ethnic looking. And if you had a nose job, then maybe we could put you up for more parts. Like things that maybe they're still said today, but they were disgusting. At some point realized, maybe I just want to work behind the camera instead. I found a job on a soap opera. It was 1983. That's where I met my husband. He was, he was finishing his master's at Columbia in playwriting and he got a job in the casting office, which was in-house. And I got hired. It was supposed to be two-week summer replacement for somebody on a vacation. I was the production secretary. They kind of loved me and they fired the woman. And I kept the job, did see her occasionally. She left the business and she realized she was not, she was an ex-Marine and it wasn't for her anyway. And it worked out for the best, but I felt terrible. But I was a production secretary. They offered to train me as their backup script supervisor. And I started doing that and loved it. But then I got to observe everybody else's and I really wanted to stage manage. So I became their backup stage manager. And then I became their backup associate director in the booth. And I decided what I loved most was the stage manager, being on the stage, you know, interacting with everybody. Then I moved out here in 1986. Mark and I moved out and I ended up taking a non-union script supervisor job because it, I couldn't find any work. I interviewed a lot and I was told by sitcom producers, because I'd only worked in soap operas, where we did an episode every 50 weeks a year. Well, it's a very different rhythm, so you can't work in sitcoms. And I'm like, wait, but I did every day what you take a week to do. Why can't I do it here? And so somebody I knew from New York called me and said, hey, they're looking for a script supervisor. It's non-union, but you should take it just to meet people. And I took it, and the exec producer on that, her husband was an executive at some entertainment company, and they had a show on ABC at the time called I Married Dora. And the script supervisor quit six out of their 12. So I ended up getting the job for the back six. And on that six week little job as a script supervisor, which was the union job now, I met a young woman named Janice who booked a pilot after that called Roseanne. And she went and started it up. And there was a young guy in the office named Eric Roden. I don't even know what his title was, like production coordinator or whatever. She called me and she said, they really want a second stage manager, a female. They have a, a, a male coming in as the first, but they want a second to work with Roseanne since she's a woman. So I told them that I just worked with you as a script supervisor, but that you had been a stage manager. And this was the best. I went in, I was late 20s, and I went in and I, Eric had to interview me. And we were probably about the same age. Maybe he was a little younger and we chatted. And his door was open to his office and he went out and he told Gail Maffeo, who was the line producer, and he said, I, I just met this woman and I think she'd be good. And I heard Gail outside in the hallway say, then hire her. So I got the pilot of Roseanne. I was told that I could only do, when it got picked up to series, that I can only do the first like half of the season because they wanted me to train somebody who was like a and had an in through family members to be that position. And so I thought that was that, but that person didn't work out and had no work ethic and uh, didn't really want to learn. I got I to stay. I remember that. I got to stay. And we were so lucky to have you pretty much for the whole run. And yeah. you were a gentle guiding hand that kept a lot of people on track. Thank you. Yeah. Hi. Coming into this, not knowing anything. You were one of those sources of, of confidence and trust and knowledge and, and support that you could just go to. And you seemed to know where everything was and what everything was going to be and when something was a big deal and when it wasn't that big a deal. And you knew how to guide it all. I also learned a ton from Mark Samuels. I have to say, you know, coming from the soap where... I observed the woman who didn't want to teach me and then I just jumped in and then coming 
getting to do this with Mark, Mark had that kind of temperament. So it was great to have that as a role model, not a screamer, not that I ever would have been a screamer. It's not who I am, but to have somebody who like-mindedly led the stage in a kind way was yeah. really, it was a, a wonderful place to learn and get more confidence. I don't think really until my late thirties, I had the true confidence that I know exactly what I'm doing and I trust my gut when it comes to, we need to do this or we need to do that. Late thirties to 40 is when I finally felt like, I know what I'm doing. Okay, now after all these years, what's the dream going forward? What's the dream for the rest of this career and what you see going forward? My dream is that we get to keep doing this show until I'm like 70 something and I can retire. But I don't know that everybody will want to keep doing this show for 10 more years. But I would just love to people that I enjoy their company and keep doing what I'm doing and hope that people will still hire me even though I'm not a young kid anymore. Uh, wisdom. Uh, there's no price for that. Ah, uh, some people don't agree with you. That's why I love it. <laughs> Yeah, I just love it. And I hope I can keep doing it. And I hope I have the physical stamina. Our show, I'm really lucky. Our show, you know, our hours are nice. Yes, we, we work quick. We're efficient for the most yeah. part, especially comparatively. Being on a multi-cam sitcom style show is probably the best schedule in, in yes. and and Yes, and, and being a show that's family, but, you know, adult-oriented, when you're on a kid show, the hours can be really brutal, despite the fact that kids have limited hours, you'd think it'd be easy. And in any show you do find as an AD, you're kind of on the clock 24 seven, seven days a week. Everything's fluid. The script is changing every day, as you know, and therefore the schedule is changing every day. And you're just night and day, the phone's ringing and the texts are coming in and you just kind of have to accept that. You know, when I start a season for, for 35 years now, Mark says, I'll see you when the season's over. <laughs> and yeah. uh, sometimes it's kind of like that. On this show, I'm very grateful that it's a much nicer pace and a much uh, more livable show that we get to like just relax. But who knows what's after this? Well, hopefully uh, something that I write and create where we start with the right tone so we can just enjoy you know five exactly. to ten years of doing what you like till you decide that you decide you want to move on and do something else all right that sounds good let's I'm do good it with that. <laughs> do. all right so what are some of your career highlights what are some of the projects that stick out in your mind well i would have to say the big three for me i don't want to insult any friends that i've worked with um but being on that soap opera for several years and meeting Mark on it, that, you know, that whole thing, that whole beginning of my career and all the opportunities they gave me were amazing. Lucking into the Roseanne pilot and spending eight years of my life with everybody there while I had my kids was like such a gift. I, you know, you can't even describe. One of the single biggest gifts is getting to come back 30 years later with everybody that was a part of your life for so long and you know kudos to Sarah when she put it together for reaching out to people that had been there at the beginning and saying come back and do this with us especially that first season that reunion season was very healing you know there was a lot of stuff that went on with Roseanne uh, back in the day and I was not asked back ninth season and there was just stuff and to come back and have that reunion show be this gift full circle you know and gail mancuso and i discussed that too because she came back to direct and roseanne had given her, her first directing gig 30 years before and it we talked about it before she came back to direct her episodes and she's like ah, i'm nervous and i'm like no it's like you never left it it just feels like home it was so Healing is not really the right word because there was nothing really left to heal, but it really was sort of this like full circle feeling of we all get to come back together 
on a different level. We all have 30 years, you know, well, since we've seen each other, 20 something years of life experience in between, and we can appreciate what we had back then and what we get to have again. Yeah, it's such a special thing, I think, it in general. Very, very special. And rarely do you get to go back to a group of people that you had amazing experiences with, with all of that time and knowing just how, how lucky you are to be in that place. I think perspective is a beautiful thing. Yes, and not only is it not that not very often it's like never in in these careers when do you ever get to do that so that has been this amazing gift at this point in my career that and a show that i just came off of which i know you came to visit me that was a dream job at every level alexa and katie on netflix what a beautiful concept it was a beautiful concept and the most beautiful group of people all told I've never worked with a group where from the very top to the very bottom and I, I give a lot of credit to the line producer who valued everyone the same but I give a lot of value a lot of that goes to the creator Heather Wordham because I've never had a relationship with a writer's room like I had with that writer's room but everybody had that relationship everybody was treated as equals and it was and as you know, I had had the ankle surgery and then I retore my tendon and I knew the producer from just a pilot I had done. And he's like, I don't care if I, whatever I have to do to have you here. And I couldn't walk. He rented me like a grandma scooter, like from Costco. And I had to do that first season, 10 episodes, cart crashing into walls and podiums and riding over camera cables. And it was ridiculous, but everybody rallied around me and nobody knew me there. Only the producer knew me, and yet the writers, I'd be stuck in my little cart, and it's show night, and they're worried about their scenes going well, and they'd be coming over to me going, do you want anything from craft service? We'll go to craft service for you. I mean, it was the most warm, loving thing that was just really lovely. That's, that's what I seek to create. Um, not just great shows with great topics, but a great environment, a place where people value what they do. And I think that's where you get the best work is people love to go to work. They love what they do and they love to share it with their friends, their family. The process of collaborating becomes heightened and better because everybody wants this thing to work and be grand. Yes. And everybody's there giving it their all, doing their best and respecting that everybody else is as well. We had so much fun on that show, which I mean, now we started playing like basketball and stuff on the Connors, which is nice. But our show, we like, we do our work in a very consolidated amount of time and go home. On Alex and Katie, we would like do surprise birthday parties and all these things that we would like plot against other people. That was, it was just fun. Yeah, plotting for joy. It's a beautiful thing, right? Usually people are plotting for the wrong reasons, but to have a group of people who are always building something positive. Yes. And you know, Nitsa. Nitsa was my stage PA and she was always looking for pranks and we would try to like roll cameras and pull these pranks. Oh my God. The associate producer planned this huge 50th birthday surprise for our line producer. And we had to pretend there was a blackout and we were shutting down the show. And really we were just getting into a set where we had made a movie and, the, and the, a group of crew members put together a band to play. And the funniest thing as an AD is that after the movie was over, but before that he turned around and knew there was a band, first thing he said, he looked at his watch and said, please tell me you left time in the day for this. And I'm like, whatever. I mean, I had this whole plot, <laughs> Jody Hahn, who we know as, as, was directing and the showrunner and Jody and I, we had these like secret code words. <laughs> Now, now, now I'm going to do the blackout. Now I'm going to say, I just need one pickup. And that's the cue to turn on all the lights. And, and like, how's Heather, the showrunner, going to let me know, like, okay, it's, it's okay now to go. And Heather, like, was like, all right, we'll make time. You know, we'll, we'll just go faster in the other scenes. Just a kind of fun that you, you can only dream of to have at work. Who gets to do that at work? Oh, that's the dream. I want to be that space. I want to be the place where people don't want to retire. I know. I don't want to retire. So you're stuck with me. I hope to be stuck with you for another 15 or 20 years till you just decide and that you're healthy and happy. And then you decide that you want to travel or do something else. But I want to help make that possible. 
Well, we're lucky. We have hiatuses, so I can travel on a hiatus. What is one of the strangest things you've seen on set? We don't have to use any names or get anybody in trouble. <laughs> Over our time, we've seen some strange things, but... Yes, we have. Uh, okay, one of the strangest, and it wasn't on our show, was an actress, and I'd been forewarned by a fellow actor friend. I thought I was going to love working with this person, and he was like, oh, no, you're not. She brought her dog to work every day, which is a lot of people do, but she would like put the dog food on the counter in craft service and put the dog down on the counter and let it eat. She would let the dog run and use the hallways as its bathroom and let cast members clean up after it. We were shooting. We had two stages. One was a multicam traditional set and the other was like a four walled single camera set. And her dog was running around it and the dog was peeing on the carpet. And the set decorators like, that dog has to go. The dog has to go. And I called the producer and I'm like, I, I need help. I need help getting this dog off the set. She was like, always, it was always with her. So he, the producer came down and he's like, look, I'm sorry, but the is going to like take the dog and, you know, sit in your room with the dog. And I'll never forget the script supervisor and I are standing there and she's like, somebody get me an apple. And a PA runs to craft service, which was on the other stage and gets an apple and comes back. And she takes a bite of the apple, it's in her mouth, and then she spits it into her hand and she puts her hand out, says to the PA, take it, feed it to the dog, so that the dog would go with her. And that script supervisor and I started laughing like we couldn't stop. It was so absurd. The whole thing was absurd like you see it in a movie. <laughs> yeah, everybody out of control and it just never stops, right? Oh my goodness. So yeah, that was one thing that uh, was quite interesting. And also, uh, in my Nickelodeon days, got to work with a lot of animals. So you got to see a lot of uh, interesting things with animals happening. I had a monkey do a jig on my head. I got to pull little pigs and all kinds of things. But of course, when the actors held little pigs, they got pooped on. I mean, we've had all kinds of experiences. <laughs> and I don't know if you remember this. I think it was a scene with Lisi and Sarah they were on the stairs with me waiting to be cued back when they were little, little, and there was a hamster or a guinea pig or something in a shoebox, and one of them had to take it out and carry it in on the queue. Justice, who put it in their hand, and I was like, go, go, go. The hamster went to the bathroom in her hand. She's like, but it just pooped in my hand. I'm like, just go, just go. <laughs> oh, all those silly things you remember. You look back and you think to yourself, I'm never going to see anything like that again, right? And then you see something different. We've seen a lot of things. You work so deeply with every department. You know, you touched on a script supervisor, and I don't think I haven't touched on it yet, what a script supervisor does. And it's kind of one of those jobs that, again, I think is under the radar. What is it that a script supervisor does? Well, it's kind of, it's evolved from when I did it. Back when I was a script supervisor, there were two main jobs. You're in charge of timing. And as we know, it's to the second, you know, the network gives you like, now it's down to like 20 minutes and 52 seconds or whatever. And the rest is commercials. So you're timing it because the writers need to know. And you're, you're taking down all the line changes that the actors are requesting or the directors are requesting or the writers are calling down. But back when I was a script super, you were also the one on book. You were looking for continuity. So when you're recording, you're looking at the monitor. Uh-oh, that bowl is pink and it was yellow in the last take, that sort of thing. Or you have the bag in your right hand and now it's in your left. Or you crossed your legs and they weren't crossed. That was all script supervisor while you're taking time code. Also, you were in charge of being on book. And if anybody was off book and yelled for a line, that was you. Now, it's much more common to have dialogue coaches and they work close supervisors and I have run into it in the last couple of years there are still some script supervisors who get all ruffled like that's my territory I throw the lines you don't but most are like hey let's work out like I'll do it during this you do it when we're shooting and I have a lot of time code because during rehearsal you're, you're looking at the words you're not taking any time code but when that time code's running and you're looking for continuity and you're looking for every 10 seconds to mark in your script for the editor there's a lot to do so we have you know our two dialogue coaches who work closely with our script super it's one of those jobs that is often overlooked but powerful it's it's powerful because if, if they don't do it right it, it can yes. mess a lot of things up Everybody has an important job to do. They don't always get the respect that they deserve, but everybody has an important job to do. What's one of those experiences that you just 
couldn't wait to share, that you couldn't wait to come home and tell your loved ones about? I, I was very proud when Mariel Hemingway was on and we did our first same-sex kiss. Mm -hmm. And I just this weekend reminded of how lovely it was to have Martin Mull and Fred Willard on set. I mean, all the people we got to work with, Estelle Parson, Winters, Tony Curtis. I mean, everybody came through those doors and most of them were amazing. Remember all the sitcom moms we did that episode? That was amazing for the 50s episode to have all of them in the kitchen in a group. And probably the most interesting part for me was listening to all of them talk about their experiences and the difference in how they made their shows and what they get to do. And that credit tag came out of the conversations that they started having with Roseanne about, you're allowed to do that. We never got to say that. I can't believe you could do that. And next thing you know, it's our credit tag. What was it? One of them had the biggest potty mouth ever. And it yes. was laughing like, oh yeah, which of course that's me. So I related to that. A funny story that I couldn't wait to go home and tell because it was the most embarrassing thing. There was a very esteemed stage actress and, and I did a pilot with her 20 something years ago. She called, I called her about the schedule and makeup and hair and everything. And she said to me, I thought on the phone, she was already probably in her sixties then. And she said, does makeup do lips? And I said, of course they do lips. And I thought that was the silliest question ever. And I went to the makeup people on this pilot and I'm laughed and I said, just ask me if you would do her lips. Like, of course, who doesn't put lipstick on their actors? Well, cut to two weeks later and we're shooting and he's in makeup and hair. She did not ask about lips. She asked about lifts because they, they can put, they have these like scotch tape things that they put on aging actresses. See, and it takes away all your wrinkles. They scotch tape it like behind your, hair and she had asked if they would do lifts. I had never heard of such a thing. So I'm like, yeah, lips, of course they do lips. <laughs> they came out of that makeup and hair room ready to shoot laughing. They're like, Amy, not lips. <laughs> lips. But that's but the funny true. thing. After all these years, you can still learn things, right? Like people will still surprise you or there'll be something that you never considered that other people think is normal. That reminds me of the time we first saw each other after a long time. We both went to visit Sarah Gilbert the same day on her talk show when her talk show started. Yep. It's going to be an interesting uh, season and how we're going to address all kinds of issues. It'll be a whole new world for all of us, I think. I think that's one of the things as we go through this transition period, we don't know exactly our business is changing. So how that's going to manifest itself and you'll be in the middle of it because you'll be making the schedules and trying to adhere to all these things and adding what the differences in time and schedule and pieces are. We're lucky. We're in a show where people work fast and we can come in and we can do our days and go home and it doesn't have to drag on for 12, 14 hours. We're not one of those shows and we can get it done. We're also really fortunate. I think that we work on a show that deals with real life issues so it can write what the world's going through right now. We don't have to pretend like, let's all sit around the dinner table and be on top of each other. We can deal with what's happening. Well, that's the beauty of what we get to do on our show in particular is the ability to tackle something that's really heavy and really serious and do it with depth and layer and comedy, but be very serious about what's going on. That does remind me of a moment that you said, what was a special moment that you ran home to tell Mark? The pilot of Roseanne. I read that pilot and ran home to Mark and said, oh my God, this is a hit. This, that pilot, just from the get-go, our show was so, the writing has always been so fortunate. The writing has been so good because it's such a great mixture of reality and where are the laughs in real life. It's never just about jokes. That's the beauty of our show, I think. Always struggling for that, that balance. It truly is unique. It really is a, is a rare, rare, rare blend. And it's, it it's hard because I don't think, you know, I try to write stuff that is very real and honest and raw in that way. And a lot of times I'm met with, well, is it a comedy or is it a drama? And people are uncomfortable because it's not a certain number of jokes per page or, you know, it's not, it doesn't fit a straight format. Well, for me as a viewer, it's always been, I've always preferred watching 
where any laughs come from the characters. Yeah. I not agree. a, not a, you know, stupid <laughs> shtick. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, after all of these years, Amy, what is the one project, if you could go back to one project, knowing what you know now, is there one that you would go back and do some things slightly different? I don't know why this one show came to mind. It had some very difficult leading ladies, and it took me a while. I ended up loving it. I did two years there, and, um, and then unfortunately we got canceled, but I think I probably could have enjoyed more of it more. It was a struggle to come to terms with the demands being put on me by three different leading ladies. You know, there, there have been some shows, I was a guest on one that was insane. There were three or four leading ladies. We were, I was only booked to do a location shoot for them. And I was told, oh, and good luck, because nobody will come out of their dressing room first. Uh. I was the second on this. It was a location shoot in Canyon Country, knocking for these women. Well, is that one out? Is this one out? Is that one out? Oh, my God. There were some tough personalities. But I think that that show and that show for me, maybe I could go back and enjoy more. But I do give it the credit of because those ladies were so tough on me, that's where I really felt like, don't talk to me that way. And there was an older actress on that who stormed off the stage and went home, screamed at me, stormed off the stage and went home. And the director was a guest. It was his first time there. And he's like, call her and ask her to come back. And I'm like, absolutely not. She came back and my daughter was six at the time and she was on set. It was like, bring your kid to work day. And the woman came up, didn't apologize to me that the director called her and asked her to come back. And she came back. She walked up and didn't look at me and didn't apologize, but said to my daughter, oh my God, you must be Amy's daughter. You look just like her, da, 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 da. We broke for lunch and I went up to her dressing room and it was the first time in my career that I had done this, but I knocked on her door and she opened the door. Oh, Amy. And I said, don't ever, ever talk to me that way again. Oh, please have dinner with me. And I'm sorry. And I love you. And I didn't know this or that. I'm like, why didn't you tell me? And I said, because you screamed in my face and stormed out of the building. How could I have possibly explained to you what had happened? Her call time changed by 15 minutes. But I chose at 11 p.m. because she was an older woman not to call her and say, you can come in 15 minutes later. That's why she left. And I'll never forget, she came in and Joe said, oh, well, things changed. So you're like, you got 15 minutes. And he said in the walkie, because you know, we're always on walkie with each other. Amy, she's coming for you. She's gunning for you. She's headed towards you now. And she just got in my face screaming and stormed out of the building and drove home. But that moment of going up to her door and nicely saying, don't ever talk to me that way again. I, no, not going to fly. It changed. It sort of changed me. So I don't know going back. Would I change it? Maybe not. There was a lot of different pressures on me that I had never experienced before that show from these three very strong women, but I think it, it helped shape me in to deal with anything. As an AD, people outside our business don't know, but you're on a walkie. So you have kind of two worlds going at the same time. You have a technical world in your ear, and then you have the world in front of you. What's that like? When you're on a walkie just to your team, which is really all I do now, that there is no truck, it's just me and, and the people in my department, I'm telling them who I need, what I need. They're talking to each other. And sometimes that drives me crazy and I have to turn it down. But sometimes I turn it off and then I forget I've turned it off and they come like, Amy, are you not hearing this? And sometimes two of them are talking in that ear and someone walks up whispering in that ear. And I'm like, I, I can't hear you whispering because they're yelling in this ear. And, um, but it's really about what you need. You learn some good lessons. Like sometimes wardrobe departments want a walkie and I was doing a show with Joe and Skylar like six seven, eight years ago and they always kept a walkie in the wardrobe room with a walkie on and I won't name the lead actor but he was in wardrobe and I didn't know and we're looking all over for him to get out for a scene and I'm on the walkie like does anyone know where the expletive yep. so-and-so is? And all of a sudden, I hear him on the walkie going, I'm in wardrobe and hold your horses or whatever. I'm like, oh, <laughs> luckily, we had a good relationship. But normally, it's private between us. Like, what the hell? Where is right. this one? Where is that one? Hurry, hurry. You know, you're always 
always up against that clock. All right, what's the hardest part of your job? I think it really depends on any given day and any given production. I would say in an overall view of my career that it's being that clock keeper and trying to keep on that schedule because sometimes it feels like an immense pressure. So that being a, a clock keeper gives me for the most part, I think, the most stress. Personalities, sometimes it's cast, sometimes it's crew. Um, but that's always just a matter of finding, finding a way. Because you have to find a way. And, I, and there have been a couple of shows that I've done with Joe where people do not respond well to a woman. And Joe and I kind of figure that out, or they don't resp respond well to a guy. And we kind of have to divvy up some tasks that normally the other would do because someone's a jerk. Yeah, and it's very interesting because some people don't respond well to certain people and or come with preconceived notions or whatever their drama is from beforehand. And that all of that goes into the formula of how you're going to work with this person and manage your set. It's always, at least for me and my team, if they're ever uncomfortable, like sometimes you're behind and you need to push an actor and that's hard, you know, especially, you know, you're working with big names or whatever. And sometimes when things aren't moving the way you need to in makeup and hair or an actor's not coming out of their room, I'm the first that always says, do you need me to step in? And there have been dozens of times over the years where Joe or Skylar will say something to a particular person or to a department and not get the right response. And then I have to put my big girl pants on and go be the boss. What's the first thing you look for on a call sheet? Mistakes. <laughs> Um, you know, when it comes to call sheets, really, my second, my key second and my second second put it together and I really just proof it and hope I find the mistakes. Sometimes the producer and, and the associate producer upstairs find them. I guess I look at the next day's schedule and that it is the same as what I gave them as the times we're going to start, when we're going to go to lunch, when we're going to do a run through, or when we're going to start shooting, whatever it is. Is it the schedule that I gave? Uh, I look at the advanced schedule and is that what I gave? And I look up at the top, like who's the first man in, I make sure the director's name and the date are right. And then I look at the back and make sure that the crew, because every day different crew people are coming in. So I, don't, I guess the first thing is really tomorrow's schedule. Maybe for a moment, if we can get into schedules, because you've worked on so many different projects, the schedule is so dramatically different from project to project, from the same type, but different formats and different leaders but maybe talk a little bit about what our basic kind of outline of a schedule is on a sitcom. I'm glad I do multi-camera. Um, so basically, let's say Monday to Friday, because that's my favorite kind of show, Monday to Friday. I've done a lot of Mondays and Tuesdays, and then you're working it all weekend long, which stinks. Monday, you come in, you do your table read for the network, you get all the notes from the network, you do as many wardrobe fittings as you can do for the week. Some shows rehearse, and some shows go home. Uh, some shows rehearse a few scenes just to get their feet wet. Some shows, some directors like to do scenes once, rush through everything and go home. It's very varied, uh, but that's Monday. Tuesday, come in and you rehearse and you do your producer, which is your writer run through. And then again, there's notes and rewrites and you wait for the next script. And then the next day is another rehearsal of now the new material. If there's any changes in or the same material, just fine tuning and you do your network run through and there's more notes now with the network there. And then your final draft will come out for Thursday, which is, there's much more pre-shooting than in the old days. Some directors like to pre-shoot everything and have it in the can and they think that makes show night faster. I think the difference between audience energy and not for some actors is so different that shooting some shows they never use any and it's like why are we spending 10 extra hours here but basically your thursday is you're showing it to your camera people and your sound people who are there for the first time that week and you're marking everything so that they can really light it the cameras set their shots maybe pre-shoot a few scenes maybe not we tend to pre-shoot a couple of things on our not that many and then Friday is your show day, and you tend to, on your show day, depending, 
On most shows, if it's a very fine-tuned cast like ours, you can come in a little later and you run through everything. So whatever scenes are left, whether it's all of them or half of them or whatever, you're, everybody's great on camera. Lighting's all fine-tuned, dialed in. Actors are all fine-tuned, any last-second changes. And then everyone gets into makeup and hair, has a little dinner break, and intros are up. I love it. Me too. It's fun. Too. It's fun putting on a show every week. It is. You know, that's one of the things that I uh, will see what happens with the current situation and if we'll be able to even have audiences this coming season and how different that will feel for us. What's the last thing you want to see on a call sheet? I mean, the last thing I look for or the last thing I ever want to see on there? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe both since you asked. (laughs) Uh, I think the last thing, if it's a job I love, is series wrap in uh, in the advanced schedule. The last thing I look at on a daily basis? what time I have to be in, but usually it says own call, so it doesn't do me any good. (laughs) What's the one thing you always want to see at craft service? Chance. No. Um, I love Chance. I love Chance, too. That was my find for the show, thanks to Alexa and Katie. I got to say, when it comes to Chance, I never had tried cold brew coffee in my life, and he may be addicted to it with his little uh, on-tap cold brew coffee. Other than that, I don't know. Chance always has a lot of good things at craft service. In general, you want to feel that it's, for me, that it's clean and sanitary, and you know, you feel good about getting your food out of those dishes. Yeah, I agree. Totally. And but- it always feels very well taken care of on our set. Yeah, Chance does an amazing job. And we eat well. Okay, what's the one thing you hate to see at craft services? I've never seen it in our craft service, but cockroach. I unfortunately have seen it other places. That's one of the beauties of having a good person, right? Yes. But it's your only option on a set. That's the I agree with you. I don't want to see anything that moves on its own. Yes, exactly. Okay, Amy, how do you define success? You know, it's funny. I would say the last thing I define it by really is uh, is the money part of it. I define it by two things, loving what I do and feeling loved and respected for what I do. And how do you measure up to your definition of success? I can't really say how others feel about me. I can only know that I love what I do and I give it 150% every day. And for me, I feel satisfied that I give it everything I've got and I, I feel confident without saying, I know exactly how people feel about me. The response I've gotten over the years, especially in the last 10, 15 years of my career has been, it overwhelmingly warms my heart. You know, you don't really know. You put out, you do the best you can. You don't really know how you affect people until my people like Michael Fishman come along and tell you how you affected them. And that means the world to me, to, to know that, you know? Well, you have affected my whole life in the best possible way. Um, so if that's your definition of success, for me, you have always been a definition of incredible success. Well, thank you. And I hope to continue with you until my career ends, whenever. And then to continue doing stuff because I enjoy your company so much long after. Yes. Sounds good. Okay. What's the one thing that you want to see on every set? Smiles. Yeah, me too. Me too. What's the one thing if you could change or eliminate from a set that you take away? Negative attitudes. Way too many negative attitudes, especially when things change and people are so grumpy about not just going with what has to get done. We all know that things are going to have to change sometimes. Just choosing to be positive, choosing, yep. choosing to have the right mindset about going about work. What's the best gift you've ever gotten from oh, working that's on a project? Well, my husband. <laughs> <laughs> and what a gift, right? How long has it been? Uh, it has been, October will be 36 years that we're married. Oh, that's beautiful. I don't even know how I'm old enough to say that, but it's true. I don't feel it, but. No, but again, age is more about what you do with your time and how you invest that time and the effect you have on others than it is some kind of chronological 
note of, of passing. Absolutely. Absolutely. I always want to act like I'm 28. That's my age in my head. I like that. I always say that if we could count up and then count down a little and then count back up so I can stay somewhere closer to how I feel. <laughs> exactly. How do you want the people who work with you to remember you? I would, if people that I work with could remember that I always tried to be kind, didn't always succeed, but I always tried to be kind and that as stupid as I look, I always love to dance. I love that. I love your breakout dance parties, these moments that just bring joy. They, they're, they're so much fun. Yeah. You know, you have to get to a certain age where you just don't care what anybody thinks. The earlier you get there, I think that's the secret. The earlier you get there, the better. Yes. Did you ever, did you see the video that Vito shot of me? No. Steady cam shot. We were camera blocking first team, all the, you know, the actors were gone. And I pulled out a little speaker and I blasted a song and I danced through the sets and the crew and Vito, I didn't, with his phone was following me. And Mark, the highlight for Mark was Charlie, our onset dresser, who's been through my whole ankle journey with me, yells in the background, be careful, Amy, watch your foot. Sure. <laughs> danced under people and people started, like the stand-ins were in the set, started dancing while they were working and it was so much fun. See, but moments like that make a place come to life. They make a place a joy to come to. Yeah, I, you and I agree. Some people think it's a waste of time and stupid, and let's just do our work and go home, but not how we live our lives, and I no. much prefer our way. Yeah. All right, what is the legacy you want your loved ones to take from your life? I hope that they see someone who tried both in private family life and in work life to do their best and be there for everyone. It's interesting. I've had this conversation in the last few years, much more with my daughter than with my son about being a strong woman role model to her, which, you know, she told me that I was, which is a beautiful thing. But also, you know, as a kid, how she struggled with sharing that time when her mom was not at home especially when you're on shows where the hours were long. So there's always sacrifices, um, you know, both ends sometimes. I missed Brian's first steps. I missed Olive's first words. And, but you just do the best you can. And I think as your kids mature and understand that all, they come to see what you put out there and, and really appreciate it, which is really a wonderful thing to get to see. Well, I am eternally grateful for the time I got to spend with you. And I'm so thankful that I was able to get this opportunity to kind of share you with the world and okay. share and share our story. And thank you so much. Of course. Mwah. Bye. Talk to you soon. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. And I can't wait to share more.